This week we have a two-part episode. In the main part of the show, our first guest is Roger Watson, a highly acclaimed chef who joins us from Indianapolis, Indiana. Originally from Doncaster in South Yorkshire in the UK, Roger started working in the industry when he landed a job at a local restaurant while finishing up high school. Eventually, Roger found himself enamored with the camaraderie and order of the kitchen and moved up the ladder of success as he moved to Manchester and eventually London to work. Roger has worked in several Michelin-starred restaurants and has cooked for top diplomats and the royal family. Eventually, Roger got his break into the private chef industry, working for a billionaire while in London. After several years, Roger moved to the United States, first to Memphis, and then to Indianapolis, where he currently lives today. For the second part of the episode, Alyssa Dunn returns to join the show again. We talk with Alyssa about rebranding from the badass bartender to the hell queen, how this happened, and how she's making it work. Enjoy the show. We're back with another episode of the Industry Podcast. My name is Kip, and this is Dan. What's going on, buddy? Oh, you know, things are still going awesome, more or less. Okay. And yourself, how are things going with that? Now you're juggling three bars. Three bars. Uh, yeah, lots of time in my car. It's amazing like to be when you get into the dream of being a bar owner, and the more you own, the less you spend in the bars, and the more time <laughs> you spend in your fucking car. But... <laughs> but what these are first world problems i'm, yeah, sure I'm lucky yeah that's true. yeah so yeah let's talk about the bars so i can uh plug this uh, yeah. yeah we have uh sugar run downtown kitchener that is the speakeasy check at sugar run bar on instagram to find out what's going on there the uptown waterloo we have babylon sisters wine and spirits bar and that is at babylon sisters bar on instagram to find out what's going on there dj bain every friday night dj nana last saturday of every month and then the new spot in Preston, Cambridge uh, area is Argyle Arms 2023. Mm-hmm. The, re- the return of the Argyle Arms in the Preston area. You, we're doing a big wing and pint special starting on Wednesdays now, along with open mic night with Amanda Paul. So you're going to want to check that out. And then we have live music every weekend, Friday, Saturday night. And probably once we get our heads out of our asses uh, every night. Perfect. So, that's all happening. That's at Argyle underscore arms underscore 2023 on Instagram to find out what's going on there. So those are the bars. As far as the podcast goes, if you like what we're doing here, you're going to want to subscribe, rate, and review. That helps us out a great deal. And if you want to be a guest on the show, you can DM us directly on the Industry Podcast on Instagram, or you can email us info at the industry club. Uh, what else? Zach Hanna. Zach Hanna at ZachHanna.co does the artwork for our Instagram page. Big shout out to him. And uh, you should check him out for all your graphic arts needs. Z-A-K-H-A-N-N-A-H.co. Mm-hmm. And I don't think I have anything else to pratter on about. So we may as well just get to our guest. Yep. Sounds like a plan to me. All right. We have Roger Watson joining us. How you doing, Roger? I'm doing good, guys. How are you doing? Doing well, doing well. Yeah, thanks for coming on the show. Appreciate it. No problem. Pleasure. So uh, you're coming to us from where right now? I'm in Indianapolis in Indiana. Indianapolis. Yeah. Okay. So you uh, you've had super interesting career. We'll we'll touch on a bit of it now. That like because I'm very interested in how you ended up in Indianapolis. But you where were you where were you from originally? Originally, I'm from uh, South Yorkshire in the United Kingdom, uh, Mm -hmm. a place called Doncaster. Not very well known to most Americans. I usually say Manchester because it's the kind of nearest city that people know of. Mm-hmm. Um, just a really small, small town. Yeah. 
And uh, got you into the service industry to begin with. Were you always in the back of house? It was a it was a strange uh, strange way that I got into it. I was doing my exams uh, in high school. My dad knew a guy who owned a restaurant in the local town for twenty years called La Bistro, and he said that I should go get a job there. I called the owner up, and he invited me for an interview. He actually interviewed me for a waiter job, and then the night that I showed up to work my first shift, he said that someone in the kitchen had walked out. And he asked if I'd literally handed me an apron. And at the time, I was like, I don't really want to be in a kitchen and cook. Like, this isn't really, you know, my kind of thing. But I just kind of did it, you know, to make the money. Fell in love with it, basically, from there. Wow. So that, that really was uh, the way that I came into it. It's interesting. Yeah. Did you cook a lot at home before that or just kind of uh, trial not by really, fire? Not oh, really. really? Yeah. So uh, what, like, what specifically did you find that you loved about it? I really love the like organization of the kitchen and sort of like the hierarchy of it. That kind of appealed to me. And just the camaraderie, really, uh, of everybody. Mm-hmm. It's like any family. Yeah. Uh, that That's probably, for me, what uh, got me in. Yeah. I think that's what sucks us all in after a while, right? Like, it's just, whether you're in front of house or back house, I spent all my time at the front of the house. But you, you do develop sort of a familial relationship with the people you work with and it's funny that if you go to work at another place all of a sudden that old family's gone and you got a whole new family but it, you very quickly develop that relationship with the new people and you very quickly lose the relationship with the old people yeah that's true as well i mean there's some key people throughout my career who i've kept mm-hmm. in with from each place but you're right there's so many that that come in and out out of the door you know especially with turnover and things like that especially in the kitchen Oh yeah, massive One, turnover. You, were, you, know, you could be best friends with somebody, and the next, you know, the next minute they're gone. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, do you yeah. find that? Because I, I always, I try not to stereotype, but I like in, in my career, I've definitely found that people who work in the kitchen are transient by nature, and they tend to like always feel like the grass is going to be greener at, at the next spot. Have you found that? I definitely think that's true in kitchens. Yeah, and another thing is. Whenever you usually go for a, an interview and things like that, everything seems rosy until you actually yeah. get there. <laughs> they, <laughs> yeah. they make it really appealing in the interview. And then when you get there, you're just shit to them. So <laughs> I know. It's, it, and it's funny. It's the same as the front of the house. At the end of the day, it's always the same job. It's just a different spot, right? Like you might, you're going to be doing different things. You might have different creative control or whatever. But at the end of the day, at the back of the house, you're cooking food. And in the front of the house, you're serving drinks. Like it's <laughs> the job doesn't change. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. I agree. Okay, so when you so you start working at La Bistro, and then like when you when did you at what point did you decide, hey, maybe I want to make this my career? So as I was working weekends at La Bistro, uh, my head chef there, Paul Lovell, sort of like needed more help throughout the week, uh, so it became more of a four four five day a week job, and I was getting more and more into it. Um, and Paul was telling me at the time about places in London, and and uh, Gordon Ramsay was the name that he told me back then. This was in 2001 and he mm-hmm. wasn't really big yet um he, he'd done the boiling point episodes and things like that but paul had told me about that and that really piqued my interest and then this is really strange i'd gone to i guess in the uk we call it like a tech college not like college in america or where it's like a big big thing like going to college but like tech college i went mm-hmm. to a tech college of hospitality and catering uh doncaster catering college I'd actually gone to sign up for a different course. And on the day I had seen the hospitality and catering course there to sign up for. And I literally made the decision on that day to sign up for that course. Really? Oh, geez. What, what, what were you going to sign up for? 
Uh, I was signing up for like plumbing and things like that. Just, oh, fuck. Good call. Except for the, <laughs> except for the money difference. <laughs> I hadn't done well in school and things like that. It just it, It's not, you know, I'm only good at things that I'm really like interested in. And high school, I just, I, my grades were pretty bad. And I realized that this cooking thing was really, uh, I was really enjoying it. And so I thought, let's try and pursue it further with this tech college. Uh, so I signed up for that. And then it's really strange how it worked out because if you had gone to this open day, you could skip straight to level two or three if you had gone to the open day. But on the open day, I had actually been asked to work by Paul. So I'd gone into the restaurant and worked and I don't know if it was like a punishment from them, but they kept me on level one, even though I was the only person on the course who like had any kitchen experience. Oh fuck! <laughs> so they'd held me back a year just by missing that open day and, uh, it, it never really worked out for me at the tech college. A lot of the teachers there said that unless you complete level one, two, and three, you'll never really amount to anything in the industry. <laughs> uh, and, and that really kind of like motivated me in my entire career um, to show them that wasn't true. And I think I've done that tenfold, really. Yeah, it looks like by the resume. Uh, so when you, like, how far did you get? I actually didn't even complete level one. Okay, so because as I was going to ask you, like, I've talked to people who have gone to cooking school. I've talked to people who've gone to bartending school and like, it's very hit and miss on whether people think it was a useful experience or not. Right. Like you definitely come from the side of like hands-on experiences better than like class education. I'm guessing. hundred percent. I agree that catering college and in our particular industry, going to a school to learn, is not the way to do things. And right. in America, catering school and uh, is a very big thing. Unless you mm-hmm. have your degree in cooking and things like that, people don't really think you're a chef even. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in the European system and, and, and things like that, I think the hands-on experience is way more useful than going to school. I mean, what it was called at the time NVQ. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, I, and then I went and started in a professional kitchen and they said, you know what that means? And I said, no, and he said it means not very qualified. Oh, fuck. <laughs> he said everything you learn there, everything you learn there, forget about it. <laughs> we don't stand at yeah. the sink and wash our hands for a minute. Mm-hmm. Right. And he's like, this is the real world now. Yeah. And it's funny you mentioned that because I found the same thing. I always used to think the same thing about bartending. Like when people would come and apply for a job with me or um before when I was just when I was an employee as well, like working alongside them the people who had the fucking degree from the bartending college didn't know shit about how it actually works in real life they just they they had learned the basic recipes and someone had taught them like how to shake (laughs) yeah and and then try putting them in a bar with like 100 people wanting to drink at the same time and you'll see what happens it's the same in a kitchen yeah you know so yeah i'm very i'm very opposite of going to catering college and and culinary school Uh, i think Sorry, I didn't, mean to, I didn't mean to interrupt you. What were you going to say? No, I just mean, you know, yeah. you pay, especially in the United States, you pay so much to go to culinary school, mm. whereas I was paid to learn. Right. And, <laughs> yeah. And, yeah. And to learn better. better. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay. So uh, the other thing that you had mentioned in your bio that uh, that you sent us is that you were very anti sort of the bullying that can go on in a kitchen. I don't know if I'm saying that exactly right, but uh, you did mention that you worked with Gordon Ramsay. So is this where this came from or... Yeah, I think uh, throughout the time, particularly in London, when I worked in London, the, the, there's a massive culture of that, uh, particularly at Gordon Ramsay's, although it's it, pretty much all those kitchens were sort of like that kind of atmosphere. And I just, 
because I trained in that kind of atmosphere, I've just never really wanted to be like that. I don't really Mm -hmm. think that's a good way to teach the next generation of people. I I mean, some of the stuff I saw there at Gordon Ramsay is just complete bullshit of how, how, how they taught people and, or didn't teach people just, you know, abuse them uh, verbally and physically uh, sometimes as well. Can you Uh, give us some examples of some of the abuse that you actually witnessed? I mean, I've seen people getting kicked in the back of their heels for not running around the kitchen is just for walking. Uh, I've seen people get slapped around the back of the head, uh, spat at, uh, opt-in freezers, uh, things like that. Uh, Yeah, just really abusive atmospheres. And we were working really long hours. We were, you know, we were supposed to start at 7 a.m., but most people would be there by like 6 because everybody wanted to be there first. And then we'd leave at like 1.32 a.m. Um, oh, so not only are you like drained and fatigued from, because we were doing like six days a week. So you, <sighs> you're you on complete zero energy. And then on top of that, you're getting abused. It's right. It, it affects you. Um, yeah. And when you're working in those Michelin star restaurants and there's zero room for error, uh, for error um, if you work in that kind of environment for a long time, like I did, it affects you later on in life, uh, you know, it's like every now in my life now i'm 36 years old now if something goes wrong that's that's just a menial little thing to me it annoys me more than it should because it's ingrained in me from mm-hmm. back then you know where the tiniest little thing goes wrong and it's the end of the world so i know, you know it's hard to get into that it's hard to get in that mindset a little bit like where i always try and say to people and we said it a million times in the show too it's like the end of the day no one's fucking curing cancer in these jobs like we're making food and drinks and we're bringing them to people like let's just calm down exactly we're just cooking food at the end of the day but yeah yeah uh yeah but i yeah those uh it's funny that so what years would this be that you were working in sort of that kind of abusive sort of kitchen well, I uh, I moved to London in 2007, so mm-hmm. that's really when it started. But after I left Le Bistro, I'd moved to Manchester and worked uh, in one of Raymond Blanc's restaurants. And my head chef there, Simon Stanley, he was he took me under his wing, and he was more like a father figure chef to me. And he prepared. He knew that eventually I was going to go on to London because that's really in the UK where everybody's going to go if you want to go and work in two mm-hmm. two star restaurants. He prepared me for what it was going to be like because he'd come from that background. Um, so when I went down to London, I already had a good idea of how it was going to be. But yeah, 2007 is when I moved down down there and started in the Michelin star kitchens. Can you give us our listeners, because we talked to a couple of people who've worked in Michelin stars, but no one who's got the sort of experience that you have, I don't believe. Um, we've already talked about a little bit about the negative side of that, of how it can be. But like... What what is sort of like the day to day of you as a chef working in a Michelin star restaurant? Give our listeners a little bit of the behind the scenes of like what goes on at a place like that. It's extremely repetitive because mm-hmm. each person's role you, you get sort of like the same jobs for a long time. Like you know the menu changes seasonally, but for that season you're going to come in and you have the same job list every single day. And so basically what you're doing is like looking at the clock and knowing that like, okay, now it's 8am, I should be on this by now. So it's very repetitive and it's a race every day. Um, Interesting. Yeah, you have a very big, the prep lists are massive because each dish has sort of like 15 different components to it. Um, But yeah, you know, in the Michelin star restaurants, I definitely say things are 
very repetitive and, and uh, you're in a rush all the time to get it completed. And if you do get it completed and you have free time, then people are like looking at you like, hey, you know, you have free time. Help me out. Yeah. <laughs> I got to ask you this then. Like, okay, so you're dealing with kind of like an abusive atmosphere. It's very fucking repetitive. What you like about it is the camaraderie. But if you're going there at 6 a.m. and getting out at 1 30 a.m., there can't be too much time for that. Like, what keeps you going in a job like that? Just knowing that it's that it's going on the resume and, and that uh, you're working in, you know, you're, you're learning. Even though they're not sort of teaching you, you yourself are. Uh, just by being around that kind like of thing. osmosis, yeah. Yeah you, yeah, you know, I used to carry a notebook in my back pocket and a pencil, and as soon as somebody told me to do something, I'd be like writing it down. Mm-hmm. So, and I've got so I've got a bunch of notebooks from fifteen years ago that I've got recipes in that wouldn't make sense if anybody read them. But <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, it's like a on the job learning that's you can't get anywhere else. Yeah, absolutely. And and for me personally. The camaraderie thing in the Michelin kitchens is definitely not as much as some of the other places I worked because the turnover, like I said, was just unbelievable. People would come and start one day and they'd leave that day. And it was funny because we used to, the kitchen was on the first floor and on the the ground floor was the entrance and exit and the bathroom. And people would say they're going to the bathroom and they'd be taking their knives and be like, why are you taking <laughs> <laughs> you, <laughs> you learned to spot it, eh? <laughs> <laughs> we would call that bolting. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, people would come and leave within a few hours and some people would stay a couple of days and some people a couple of weeks. But the turnover was so high. It, was, it wasn't even worth like learning people's names because you just right. knew how. You could tell when somebody wasn't going to make it. So, yeah. so how many people would be working on like a, a regular, like say get there at 6 a.m. Like, and work that whole shift? How many people would be in the kitchen? There was around 25 chefs Ooh. in the kitchen there. And that's a 100, 120 cover restaurant. Um, so, you know, you've got all your different sections, meat, fish, veg, uh, desserts and stuff like that. There's... There's about five to six. And and then also you have like the people there working for free on stages right. from different countries and stuff. Uh, they were always cool. You know, we met a lot of met a lot of different people through those kind of jobs from around the world. So you can't really complain about that. Yeah. The staging shit is all right though, right? Because you're you know at the end of the day you're working for free. If you really don't want to be there yeah. anymore, you'll just fucking take off. Right? Yeah, that's it. They, they have such a good attitude, the people who do the stuff. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Now, is the salary reasonable uh, when you're working at the Michelin star restaurant? No. I mean, take, for example, Gordon Ramsay's in 2007. Uh, commie chef's salary was like 11,000 uh, pounds. It's like $14,000 a year in London, which is... Ooh, yeah, That's shocking. like two months of rent for an apartment, probably. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I had a room in London. Uh, how much time I spent in that room? Not very much. Because yeah, I was right. Wow, that's um, on my days off, I I went around London and ate out in places and things. But yeah, it's not about the money at that stage. Wow. Uh, it was more about just getting the experience. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's pretty but surprising. You, Jesus. Yeah, you really got to fucking love it though, right? Because otherwise, you're not gonna. There's no way you would last in a like. Yeah, like, you do. You have to love yeah. it. Sure. <laughs> yeah. So, at, when at what point did you get sort of into doing the private chef thing? That that is a yeah that's a strange one as well because in 2012 I took a year out and I went to Houston Texas. Oh, okay, uh, he's friend there who was a, a nanny uh, for a very wealthy family. And uh, while I was out there, I'd done a few dinner parties for very wealthy people and things like that. And 
you know, still at that point I was doing the dinner parties and I didn't realize really what a private chef was. But when I moved back to the UK in 2013, uh, my best friend Lawrence, who's a private chef as well, he said that he was working for a Ukrainian family and they had four chefs uh, and oh, one wow. of them was leaving. Um, and would I like to come for an interview? And I, I was like, what do you mean? Like a family have chefs like like yeah yeah (laughs) didn't didn't even know what it was so uh i went there for an interview for the for the guy who was leaving um and that's really how i fell into that it's difficult to get in the private chef world you kind of have to have some kind of in like that Mm -hmm. for me it was just lucky that lawrence uh told me about it and had been doing had been working for this family for a year in london and it was all at the right time i'd came back from texas i needed a job um it was amazing money <laughs> oh really? uh, yeah so, so private chef gigs are pr- generally pretty good money i would imagine massive yeah yeah really mega money yeah it's like definitely three uh, six figures uh for sort of like even an entry position right. seriously uh, jesus yeah um so yeah it, it was mega money in london it's four of us cooking for a family of four uh and uh yeah, so what are the hours like for that? They're like, is it this involves all three meals of the day? I'm guessing, and then yeah, we uh, it, we would go in if you did the breakfast shift, you'd be there at like five thirty a.m. and you'd leave at about nine p.m. Uh, the hours were still long, and honestly, it was just as intense as a Michelin star restaurant because the food we were putting out was, I would say, two star, sometimes three star. We'd all come from that background, and one person was constantly working on sort of like new dishes and things because the family didn't really like repetitiveness mm-hmm. they didn't have the same dish twice unless they like thought it was outstanding oh so, man <laughs> and the lady, the lady was vegan and raw raw food only so it was really hard to keep coming up with like innovative ideas so i can imagine yeah constantly working on like creating things and what about like do they have kids so the father was not living in london he was in the ukraine the mom was living in london and she had uh, two boys, and then they had. We also had to cook for the bodyguards of the boys, and then so it was cooking for four. And then on top of that, one of us had to cook for the staff, and there was a lot of staff. There was about wow. seven or eight maids. Uh, they had personal assistants, bodyguards, drivers. So yeah, the staff food was sort of like for twenty people. Oh, wow. So like, I know we t- just touched on this briefly before we started recording and being Ukrainian, of course, I'm going to ask this. What kind of, uh, you probably had to cook a couple of Ukrainian dishes. Anything that you remember specifically? or uh, uh, Borscht soups. Nice. Mm-hmm. Sweet. Uh, the kutleti. Oh, which, yeah. Yeah, that's really good stuff. That's probably one of the dishes that I've carried over and kept cooking. Yeah. Mm. Nice. Do you make any, lots of cabbage rolls too? and uh, Lots of cabbage, yeah, yeah. Cabbage, potatoes, horse meat is another one she ate. Oh, nice. Okay. But I got a funny story here because she loved her fish. Um, and we could never get fresh enough fish in London. We were, getting, <laughs> we were using like Michelin starred suppliers and it was still not fresh enough for her. Oh. So we got to the point where we were hiring like a courier to literally bring it to us. And she was still saying it's not fresh enough. And we were like, like, what is going on here? This is so fresh. And then finally, we when we went to the Ukraine, to their house in the Ukraine, they created a private lake there with sea bass in the lake. And they were just oh. going down in a golf cart 
bringing it and giving it to her within like five minutes. All right. <laughs> so this, is why, you know, this is why nothing's fresh to her. Yeah, that's funny. <laughs> So like I why the reason I was asking about the kids was like kids are notoriously picky eaters. So how like how is it to try and keep up with what the children want to eat? Well, what we would use is when they ate out, we would find out what they had ordered when they went out and what they'd enjoyed when they we would ask the bodyguards. Oh, yeah. We never really talk to them directly. So we would just tell the bodyguard, you know, when you go out for dinner and, and see what he eats, let us know. Uh, and and that's really how we ah. uh, keep him happy, yeah. That's really interesting. What a, it's a crazy dynamic, eh? Like, so you're not really in contact with the family at all, and you're getting info from bodyguards and maids and other like yeah, well, servants who work for them. We had butlers who spoke both languages, so often they would come in and speak in Ukrainian, and then the butler would translate to us, and then we'd be looking at the butler and answering back to him, and he'd be translating it back to her. But, I mean, we'd know when she was pissed off because you know, I'm sure you know how Ukrainians, <laughs> when they get angry, how they speak. Oh, Christ, yeah. You yeah, that's tell his mom talks to him every time oh, I hear him on the phone. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> you could tell when she was pissed off, we knew what was coming. So, oh, yeah, yeah I hear, hear the word Hodiata uh, a lot of the times. Yeah. And, uh, that's funny. So, <laughs> like, were you doing big dinner parties for them as well, or is it mostly just day to day cooking? Uh, for that family, not not so much the big dinner parties. Uh, they would occasionally have friends over for dinner, but it, the formal dinner parties, no, hmm. not really. Uh, and like, so you've gone okay. So after working at for that family, where did you go next? After that, I had moved to the United States to Memphis. Okay, so why there? Uh, well, I got married. Oh, oh, that'll do it. Uh, yeah. Congratulations. Yeah. Since got divorced on that. Oh, congratulations. congratulations. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I, I'd, uh, I'd moved to Memphis to get married. Uh, wasn't sure if I was going to be working in a restaurant over there because I wasn't sure if there were any private chef jobs. Uh, but uh, I knew somebody through her family who knew somebody who was looking for a private chef, probably one of only two families in Memphis who have private chefs and, I was just really lucky that I got in there. So that was 2015. So what kind of, so now you've worked for, you're working for a Ukrainian family in London and then you come and you're working for an American family in Memphis. Talk to us a little bit about the differences and what you're, what you're kind of preparing for these families. Yeah. Night and day difference. I can uh, imagine. <laughs> American, Americans are extremely chilled out and appreciative. Uh, you know, you, you would, there was no butlers and things like that. You're talking directly to the family. You're much more a part of the family. Um, the food, yeah, the food in London was more like two or three star. In Memphis, it was family meals. So, mm -hmm. you know, you have things like lasagna and things like that. You have to cook, you know. And then the family in Memphis would actually have the dinner parties that you were asking about. They, they okay. would have like 20, 30 people and you'd do a big dinner party and events outside of the house and things like that so uh, and all my background had prepared me well for that so yeah and so how many how many people how many of you were working for that family it was just me cooking just uh, you so like when you have like one of these giant dinner parties you obviously have to bring in some help so how do you go about that i'm sorry i'm just really interested in the sort of dynamics of the whole thing well in memphis I, we had a house manager uh and we had a couple of staff as well in that house and they would double up and if we had a dinner party we, we would have them help me or, you know, I would just hire people who I'd mm -hmm. met locally in restaurants and things, you know, if I ever have a good meal out and there's an amazing server, I give them a card and say, do you do private work? 
Um, oh. Often they look at me and they're like, you know, what the hell is this? You know? Right. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah it, it's, it, it was a bit of both in that role in Memphis. It was, I would say, mostly the family meals with the occasional large dinner party. Mm-hmm. And so a totally different scenario altogether, which is kind of cool. Now, Memphis is also sort of known for food as well, right? So, and but a, probably a very different style of food than you've used, been used to preparing. So how do you sort of switch focus and like learn on the fly for a totally different type of cuisine? Uh, pretty much just self-taught myself the Southern food. Um, you know, I don't want to shit on Memphis's food scene, but it is probably about 15 years behind London's. Right. Uh, sort of like the, the best restaurant in Memphis. I remember I'd looked up what it was and I, I don't want to name it, but I went and ate there. Uh, and that, you know, that I ate their signature dish and it was like filet mignon with balsamic reduction and strawberries. And I'm like, you know, yeah, this is what I'm up against. Uh, this is the best restaurant in Memphis. Yeah, you're looking pretty good all of a sudden. <laughs> My staff food's gonna shit on it. So yeah, yeah, yeah. And so here's a question: When you're the only guy working for the family as the chef, like, do you have any days off, or how does that work? Yeah, it's it's been Monday through Friday. Uh, oh, okay. In, in all my roles, really, in a private business, because. In the other roles, we've had people deputize and work a rotor system. But in these two houses, the Memphis one and the one I'm in now, it's Monday through Friday. And then on the weekends, they normally eat out mm-hmm. uh, okay, uh, or order in. So, you know, Monday through Friday, it's lunch and dinner. Mm. Oh, that's uh, it. Oh, that's fuck, what a sweet gig. So yeah. I'm sorry. I'm really just kind of fascinated by this whole uh, experience and we we haven't really talked to a whole bunch of people so i hope you don't mind me asking you tons of questions about sort of the same thing but like the when you're when you you're used to doing this sort of one two three star type meal in london for the ukrainian family then you come to Memphis, but then the, in that scenario you're almost like removed from the family and then you go to memphis and you're maybe not cooking at the same level as you're normally used to cooking but you're more a part of the family. Uh, like, wh- which dynamic do you like better? Uh, did you miss cooking like this, like at the level that you're normally used to cooking at, or did you like just like the camaraderie with the family better? Um, I think for me, I've combined a bit of both. Uh, I don't, I don't fall into the trap of being too sort of like friendly with the family. I have that professionalism as well uh, from London. Uh, the yes, sir, no, miss kind of attitude of, sure. of London. I, I've kept that. And I think that, I think the Americans like that. The mm. sort of like I, the, it's like working in the, the two of the chefs in the Ukrainian kitchen uh, had worked at the, the palace for the queen. Oh, uh, oh shit. So <laughs> I, I had obviously, that was my private, first private chef job. And so I learned a lot of being a private chef, how to behave like one from them. And I'm not talking about cooking. I'm talking about how you act around the family. So, like when you're talking to the lady, you know, you 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 stand with your arms behind your back and and curtsy to her and things like that. I learned all that on the fly in London from those guys, and I kind of carried that over, uh, and I've always kept that. Um, so, yeah, it's a lot more friendly, but I do know sort of like my boundaries and how to behave um, mm-hmm. and things. So. Did you yeah. miss did you miss the style of cooking though? Like were, were you kind of like sometimes when you're making a fucking lasagna where you're just like, oh Christ. I think so. Uh yeah, but I also kind of occasionally make 
make dishes and post them on like Instagram just for myself, just to, to keep, to keep uh, familiar with all that. Mm. So, you know, I don't, I don't usually end up serving it to them, but you know, if I'm making a lasagna on the side over here, I'm making something else that I'm right. taking a photo of and like, you know, so I don't miss it too much because I get to do that. And I get to, in my current job, I get to play around with things like that and any produce from around the world at my fingertips. So it's actually kind of cooler than working in the Michelin star kitchens. Yeah, that's cool. So I do want to talk about how you ended up in Indianapolis, but I did kind of, we didn't even really talk about this whole working at the palace situation. Tell us a little bit about that whole experience. Well, two of the chefs uh, for the Ukrainian family had worked uh, at the palace, Dale and Kevin, and Dale had actually worked for the queen directly. So he traveled with her. Um, Wow. I, I learned a lot of that. I learned a lot of things from them. I had also cooked for the royal family myself in restaurants in London, and I'd done a dinner party where Prince Charles Prince Charles was a regular. Oh uh, wow! But uh, yeah, just they they had a, they had the experience from there, and we did dishes from the palace, and you know they would always be referring to it as the palace. We did this at the palace, and this at the palace, and this is what we did, and and we kind of all did that in the Ukrainian house, and I think they liked that, mm-hmm. uh, you know. And I think Americans in general, when they know you've cooked in that kind of thing, they like that as well. Oh, fuck. Americans have a weird, and actually Canadians too. We're Canadian, but like North Americans in general have a weird fascination with the royal family. <laughs> yeah. I don't really understand it. Hey, but. Well, King Charles is going to be on our money soon. So. Yeah, sure. That's true. <laughs> At least we're part of the Commonwealth. It makes a little more sense. <laughs> yeah. uh, so when you're cooking for the palace, there are any odd dishes that you thought were kind of odd that they might request? From what I knew, the the queen, you know, she liked very humble food. She liked yeah. the fish and chips, but she liked the chips, uh, fries, you know, for all the American listeners out there to be yeah. cut, to be cut sort of like small enough to fit in her mouth. She didn't like to eat things where she would be like I having can, to I, eat it in two or ah. two things. She liked the small. I can see that. She could <sighs> eat very elegantly. So we kind of followed that up as well with the lady in the Ukrainian house. We did the ah. cake kind of thing for her and she enjoyed that. Interesting. Uh, I think they eat very humble, you know, mm. especially Prince Charles, um, from what I've been told, yeah. But they would come to the Michelin star restaurants that you were working at as like their like a night out. And so what would happen if when the royal family's coming to a restaurant, they shut the whole place down or they they pretty much would, yeah. If they'd come on a sort of unannounced visit, they may get a table in the corner and book all the tables around it and have mm. uh, bodyguards sat on the tables around it. But yeah, we, we'd had, uh, at the place I worked at in London, the Babendum, we'd had the royal family there. We had Obama there. I remember they actually came and met with the uh, with the restaurant directors before they came and, and had a look where all the exits and entrances were and things like that the week before he came. So that was pretty cool when he came. But yeah, it's... Does, it's does, out of curiosity, does anyone have to taste the food before they get it? Are we, in those kind of kitchens, we taste everything. Okay. You, you're yeah. talking about the from their side, yeah, yeah. from their side even. Uh, no, actually, no. Okay. Um, although so, that, so now we know how to kill them. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that, that actually brings up a strange story because with the Ukrainians, they uh, at their Ukrainian residence, they had a laboratory where all the produce had to go before we could get our hands on it to test oh. for things like poison and things. And they would have a guy who every other hour would take an air sample and check if there was any poison in the air. Really? They, had a separate, they had a separate outbuilding from the kitchen where they tested everything. So it was a pain in the ass because you'd be waiting to get the produce in and they'd have it, they'd be checking over it for poison. So, you know, it, it's weird. 
Okay, I'm going to ask you this, and if you can't answer it, we'll just cut this out in the edit. But like, what did this family do? Like, why? Like, why? Why? Why were they so wealthy, and why were they worried about being poisoned? The Ukrainian guy, we didn't ask too much. First, of <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's how I feel about this guy. <laughs> <laughs> we didn't ask many questions, but you can do the Google when you get their name. Uh, okay, and uh, you know, it appeared to us as though he pretty much owned everything that there is in the Ukraine. Uh, uh, gas, electric, media, police, <laughs> mm, everything was okay. paid by him. Uh, he's the richest man in the Ukraine by a country mile. Okay. Uh, and he's one of these Ukrainian oligarchs. So we, Interesting. Uh, we didn't ask too much, but... Yeah, no, probably best, probably best. <laughs> <laughs> um okay so uh we'll let you go soon you've given us a lot of time we really appreciate it but uh and i know you don't have that much fucking time off so <laughs> so we do appreciate you coming on the show but talk, talk to us about how it was that you ended up in indianapolis um so my job in memphis i'd been there since 2015 getting a little bit tired from it um and i i had uh, an agency working for me uh who placed chefs with families and he'd said that there was a family in Indianapolis. At the time, I didn't know what the hell Indianapolis was. I knew that Peyton Manning played football there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that is literally it. Uh, <laughs> that's, all, that's all most people know about it. <laughs> yeah. Um, so they flew me out uh, to Indianapolis. Uh, I was like, you know, even if I don't take this job and they don't like me, at least I've checked off another state and it's paid for, you know. Right, yeah. Uh, uh, but I rolled up for a two-day interview where you cook for the family and meet the family, and we just completely hit it off. It was natural. Uh, the gentleman who I worked for, unlike other roles that I'd been in, personally came to the kitchen and shook my hand and thanked me for coming to cook for his family. And as oh, soon as that, nice. I was that like, "That must this, have felt good, eh? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> this guy's different." And I'd found out that he was self-made, and I think, yeah. Uh, that is so different from families that I worked for in the past. Right. Um, yeah, he's just so humble uh, and welcoming to me. And I remember when I when I started, I had to go downtown to the office where he he runs everything, his worldwide company from. And I went up to the top floor of this office building, and it was in the middle of a board meeting. And he saw me through the glass, and he stopped the board meeting and came out and shook my hand and thanked me for coming. Oh, wow, just, that's this awesome. This guy is different. <laughs> and like, I, I've, from what I, I've never been to Indiana, but from what I understand, that's sort of like the state in general. Everyone's super nice there. I think it is. Yeah. I think people yeah. up, up north here are nicer than uh, one thing that I found in the south is a lot of people are over friendly and fake. Right. Uh, but no, definitely. I think in Indiana and, and up, up north, people are real and they are nice. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But that's crazy. Like, what is what a crazy fucking life you've led, man. Like, uh, and especially you're not even that old yet. Like, that's uh, you must. Uh, do you ever stop and reflect, or do you even have time to stop and reflect on like all the crazy shit you've already done? I think sometimes I do. Yeah, I, I always think back to that time in college when that that teacher told me yeah. that I wouldn't do anything. Yeah, fuck um, that guy. Uh, or a woman, woman. Uh, <laughs> Jane Fishwick her name was <laughs> fuck She's Jane Fishwick we'll, we'll get some t-shirts made up <laughs> yeah. I think about that and I think about all the chefs who, who uh, have had a massive impact on my life Paul Lovell my first head chef who's passed away since um, Simon Stanley from Manchester massive massive figure in my career um, and then yeah, the time in London. I, I don't think I'd change anything. Uh, I hated those times in London. 
um, uh, and how it was, but I don't think I would change anything. I've really enjoyed I've been doing this now for about 21 years. I wouldn't change much. Um, and I really enjoy the job I'm in right now. I wouldn't trade this job for anything. Uh, so I'm very lucky. Uh, so yeah. sometimes I do reflect on it and think how lucky I am. Yeah. Well, it's, you're, you're a cool guy, man. It has been super fascinating talking to you. Like what a career and it's still going. So as long as you don't have to test for poisons in Indianapolis, you can probably keep this gig for a bit. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thanks again, Roger. It was super awesome talking to you. Like I'm I'm not joking. That was like one of the more fascinating conversations we've had on this show. So thanks. Thanks very much for giving us the time. I know you don't have a lot of it. Yeah. Thank you guys. I appreciate you. Okay. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks Roger. And now for the second part of the episode with the Hell Queen, Alyssa Dunn. Okay, and we're back with our friend from many months ago. It's been a while coming to us from Phoenix, Arizona. She's unfortunately no longer a badass. She used to be a badass, but now she's just a Hell Queen. It's Alisa. How are you? I'm good. How are you guys? Doing well. Doing well. Good to see you again. Yeah, it's been a while. while. (laughs) You know what's funny is like, because we do this we have two guests that are recurring guests and it's you and Yelena Anter. And uh, we haven't had her on in a while either because it's just, it's, and it's only because I do the booking and I've just gotten too fucking busy to keep up with the <laughs> monthly thing. So thankfully you reached out this time and reminded me that we hadn't, but you hadn't been on in a while. So I was like, yes, fuck, let's do this. Um, and now you've got an interesting story to tell as well because yes. you, you lost your handle. I did. I, um, <laughs> we're starting from the, the bottom again. Um, yeah. So trademark is a funny thing. I would definitely suggest anyone who starts a business to check the trademark before they, they pick a right. name. Yeah. Cause, uh, I'm, I'm going to be a story now. But um, just to stop you right there, but like, honestly, you probably didn't expect to get this like sort of well-known this quickly. Right. So why would you have thought to do that? Yeah, I mean, when I yeah, when I started, it was just like, you know, when I started the Instagram or the social media, it was just like this little thing that I did. And so I wasn't really worried at the time, like, oh, I should make sure, you know, just in case. Trademark. Yeah, like when we we said you on the show, that was like, what, a couple of years ago now. And like, and you had like, maybe a couple thousand followers or whatever, right? And like, now it's... Like, so yeah, I now thought, it's like a real thing. Yeah, <laughs> and then you, you find out trademark happened, which right. is so then when just, you got to check it, and then you're like, "Oh crap!" <laughs> yeah. So describe to the listeners what happened exactly. Yeah. So, um, you know, obviously the social media has been getting larger and larger. It's getting to a point where I, you know, felt it was appropriate to trademark the badass bartender moving forward. You know, since I was, you know going to be, you know, getting compensated for my social media and different things like that under that name. And unfortunately, the badass badass bartender was already trademarked. The the doesn't really make too much of a difference. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, you know, I, I've been having to go through this whole rebrand the past couple of months. So whole new name, whole new website, whole new Instagram handle, new logo, new, 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 new everything. And so, it's been it's been stressful, but it's really good. I'm really happy about it. Uh, I'm I'm trying to think of it more as an upgrade than yeah. you know, like a whole rebrand. Well, clearly your head's around it now, but like it must have been pretty demoralizing when you first fucking found out that you like because uh, you were saying right before we started recording that like you reached out to them asking if you could use it, and so describe that process and what happened there. 
Yeah. So I reached out to the, uh, you know, the person or the company that owns the trademark badass bartender. And I was hoping that I could get some type of consent from them that I would be allowed to use the name because we are in different categories. I'm obviously, I'm an individual person looking to, you know, just do the social media stuff. They are a organization that owns it and is developing an organization kind of thing. So we're, we're kind of in different genres. And I mean, yes, we're still in, you know, a drink umbrella, but, um, they unfortunately, you know, said they'd rather not that I, you know, did something else. And so, you know, I have to I have to go on that. I can't just be like, well, no, I'm going to do it anyway. But um, they threatened a cease and desist letter. They didn't. I mean, they they said if I was going to continue at some point, it would get to that, which oh, okay. I, I understand. If I'm making money off a name sure. that they own legally, they are allowed to say, hey, no, you can't do that. My worry was that it was going to be a little bit down the line. And what will happen is you will have to pay back yeah. whatever you've made off that name to oh. them because they are owed that money. And I was like, Ouch. that's exactly where I don't want to get to. Sure. And and you've um, been growing so exponentially, like that could happen faster than you. Yeah. Would have yeah. Imagined, and I was right? like, so, I don't even want to think about how much I would have to pay back. I yeah. want to start doing, you know, classes uh, a little bit more and different things that are going to be a little bit more, um, you know, generating income at this point, since I've, I've kind of gotten to that point. And so I was like, if we're going to do it, we might as well just do do it now. So mm. yeah, it was, it was I, the most stressful part was really coming up with a new name because if you've ever tried to trademark anything, every name is taken sure. already. You, yeah. I basically <laughs> had to come up with a new word or you can, you know, if you use your name, it's a little bit easier, obviously. But uh, yeah, I pretty much had to come up with a whole new word. So that's how we came up with the Hell Queen cocktails. And so that is trademarked. I own the trademark on that. We are all good to go. Yeah. No worries now. Uh, that's crazy, though. Like, yeah, yeah, that must have been stressful. I mean, you like because you have done such a good job of like getting your the badass bartender name out there. And like we've talked about this a million times when when you've come on, but like like how quickly it grew and like going yeah. back to what I was saying earlier, but like when we first met you and you just had like a small social media following and now, and then it fucking exploded. And then you had like what, like, I think the last time you were on, you were telling us about that, vi that one video that you did about tequila or bad tequila, which tequila to drink. That, oh yes. That, that, that was really the one that up. really like helped blow it up. Yeah. Yeah. And so that you do all this work and then all of a sudden you're like, I can't use this fucking name anymore. <laughs> yeah. I mean, luckily, I don't have to start like a whole new Instagram. I can just change my handle name. Right. So, and I've been, you know, I've been advertising it while I took, um, I, uh, I went, I kind of ended up in social, I ended up in Instagram jail for a couple months where I wasn't able to, <laughs> do, where I wasn't able to do branded content or monetize in any way. So it was like, well, you know what? I have to do this rebrand anyway. Like, Right when I'm getting done uh, with this, you know, jail infraction is right when I'm about to launch the uh, the new brand. So why don't I just take a huge break? And then when we start, so I've been advertising it, you know, a little bit throughout the, the past couple months and like moving up to it. So hopefully my followers will start to recognize that that's what's going on. I've talked about it a lot on my, on my channel and everything like that. So hopefully it won't be like too much of a like shock and like, what right. is this person now? Um, but you know, it's, we're just going to have to see what happens, honestly. Yeah. At least it's good that you had some time, right? Because yes. like you can keep doing like if 
people are already following you. So if they're watching you do the videos and you're constantly dropping the new name, then like uh, you would assume people would just follow along. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. hopefully they will. Like I said, I don't have to start a whole new Instagram. I can just change my handle and I keep all my followers and everything like that. So luckily it's not, we're not completely starting from scratch or else I would have, yeah. I don't know what I would have done if I, if that was going to be the case. So just uh, like describe to us how you came up with the name despite, or besides like just looking for any fucking name that wasn't already trademarked. <laughs> like, I mean, that, I'm not going to lie. That was a huge part of it. Yeah. I, just, I went through name after name and looked trademark, trademark, trademark. And I had my, I have a trademark lawyer that I've been working with and she was looking up names for me. And uh, I mean, honestly, it, it was kind of just going down the line of it. Like, nope, that one's taken. Cross it out. Nope, that one's taken. Cross it out. Nope, that one's taken. Cross it out. And you just get to a point where you're like, I, I, uh, I, I got to a point where I was like, okay, I'm going to have to come up with a new word basically to, <laughs> to, you know, uh, be part of this brand. And, uh, there is a company called hell babes, which I'm a really big fan of. And they do a lot of like t-shirts and they're, you know, very, uh, feminist and woman. And I was like, well, I, maybe I could play off of that. I really like mm. that, how they came up with kind of a new word and, uh, just the, you know, the, the queen and the cocktails, that kind of alliteration was like, you know, really easy to kind of flow and everything like that. And once I landed on it and it wasn't, it wasn't trademark. I was like, that's what we're going with. Yeah. I don't want to talk to any, I don't want anyone else questioning me. It's a good one. It's a good one. So I uh, like, yeah, it's, it's like, it's, that's not a bad transition. Badass to help. Yeah, it's it pretty flows good. Pretty well. Yeah. And I feel like it stays within like what I hope that my brand represents, which mm. is, you know, like the feminism and, you know, t talking of things outside the drink world, not just right. like stuck to the the cocktails necessarily. What was your favorite one of that giant list that was already taken? Oh, I think the queen of cocktails I really mm. liked. Um, mm. But that was already taken. Uh, I'm trying to think if there was something. I mean, I mean, the badass bartender just was like. That was really good. Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> It's yeah. just so perfect. I was like, oh, come on. Come on, yeah. please. I really wanted to write back a letter with just being like, please, you guys, please, <laughs> please. Just, I, just please begging. Yeah. I'll do anything. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, I think yeah, I think you landed on a good one. And like, so um, and, and the good thing is that you are going to be able to rebrand really quickly, like we were talking about earlier, because you've already got the following. You've had time to like get people used to the new name. How do you come up with like the new logos and everything? So the logo um, has kind of been um, uh, it was a idea th that I just had. Someone had kind of been like, oh, I kind of imagine this your logo looking kind of like this. And I was like, oh, I kind of like that. And, and you know, it just kind of trains. I wanted to keep that kind of. Um, you know, it, with the badass bartender, it was a lot of like skulls and and that kind of genre of like gothic and like metal and and rock and roll kind of thing. And I wanted to keep the Hell Queen kind of in line with that. And so I was like, I really want to bring a like a skull into it, but I want the logo to be a little bit. My logo from the badass bartender was very just like the words and a little like cocktail pick. It was pretty simplistic. And this one, I really wanted to, I wanted to get a proper artist to do some like artwork for me and really uh, kind of, you know, like I said, I wanted this to be an upgrade. So I wanted the logo to like really come out and pack a punch mm -hmm. because when you're doing it the second time around, you're like, okay, it's really got to make a statement this 
this go around or else no one's going to notice it. Um, and so I worked with a local tattoo artist that's done some of my tattoos and he came up with this, drew out this logo. I don't know if you guys can see it in the back, but it came we out amazing it looks awesome we can yeah. see it no, nobody who's listening yeah. can see it but it's dope yeah, <laughs> yeah. so you just got to tune into at least new, new yeah in new pages so you can yeah. see it but it does look awesome yeah yeah, yeah. so it, and i like that it, you know it kind of resembles me a little bit you know it's got the long i don't have long mm. hair anymore but like it's got the long hair and you know it's got the skull face so it's you know, still representative of that. She's shaking a cocktail. Come on, Elisa, you don't have a skull face. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> don't sell I yourself actually, short. <laughs> I think a picture of me shaking a cocktail to kind of use as yeah. a, as inspiration. So I really like that it feels a little bit more like me than just, you know, some words like the badass bartender. No, I think, yeah, I, I agree with you. I think it's like, I think it's going to work out well for you. Like the logo looks awesome and, and it kind of gives you a chance to rebrand yourself. Like you started the badass so long ago and like when you probably didn't really realize what it was going to become or have any idea about it and so you weren't thinking about like trademarks and logos and all this stuff oh, yeah yeah so but then once you're already established it's like well you don't want to change anything because you have all these followers so right. in a weird way this might be good for you it's like it kind of forced you to do some things that you probably wanted to do yeah yeah for sure for sure so i'm really excited about it we'll we'll see what happens like i said but i think yeah. it upgrade it's an upgrade upgrade that's the way to look upgrade. at it yeah. that's it's an upgrade not a rebrand an upgrade yeah well we still think you're a badass and a hell queen so <laughs> i told you i'm keeping that badge i'm not gonna yeah. let it go yeah. badass. exactly so tell us uh we'll let you go soon um but and then we'll be more dil diligent about getting you on regularly like i i just got when we have time we've got time. yeah everybody's everybody's busy yeah <laughs> um but uh talk to us about what's going on at the bar in phoenix and where people can come see you yeah so Help i'm clean still it at up. Merc bar i'm still at Merc bar in mm -hmm. phoenix um i work on the weekend still and then i work on tuesdays we just started opening up on tuesdays um, yeah, it's great. Everyone, please come and see me. We, we have, um, we're, we're kind of going through, I would say like a developmental phase. We, uh, just got a new bar manager who's doing fantastic things. We just got a new cocktail menu out. We've got, uh, some amazing additions to the team. I'm super excited. It's, it's the best time to be at Merck Bar. So definitely, definitely come in and check us out. Awesome. And, uh, once again, for the listeners, where can they follow you now? Hell Queen Cocktails. Hell right. Queen Cocktails now. Beautiful. Well, thanks again, Elise. It's always so good to see you. I'm sorry it's been so long. It'll be more regularly going forward. I finally got this fucking bar open now, that so that'll take some time. I'll have more I time. Know how to it is. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. Great to see you, buddy. Oh, yeah. yeah. Anytime. Anytime. Yeah.